Thank you, Sharon, for that gorgeous opening. Good morning. Welcome to those here and then listening on the radio this beautiful August morning. There are many uh, announcements in the uh, bulletin, so please look through those. A couple I just want to highlight. Um, today, following church, you're invited to stop at, by the ministry center for refreshments and to give our best wishes to our youth pastor, Tori and Jake Bridegan, who get married in two short weeks. Truly a special time for Tori and Jake. And for our uh, two months, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Thank you for correcting me. She didn't want to speed it up. She's probably not ready. No, probably not ready. But anyway, a special time for them and for our church family as they they want us to be a part of that. So um, stop by afterwards to to wish them well. Next Sunday, one week, the 27th, you're invited to the first church family picnic at the Knoxville Park from 1130 to 130. Please bring a side dish or dessert to pass. Entrees will be provided by the Sunday School Department. There will be family games, nine square relay races for the entire family to compete in, have some fun, and obviously spend time as a family together. We also want to welcome here the members of the confirmation class of 1948 who have joined us for service this morning. Those of you from that confirmation class from 69 years ago, can you stand or wave a hand? We have many here. No, don't see too many. If you do see them afterwards, please uh, say hello and give them a greeting. Last week during a worship service, shortly after it began, we lost power. The lights went off. The organ didn't work. We didn't get Coach Carl's message recorded because the soundboard didn't have electricity to run. But it made for a special hour of worship and learning. We had the piano with Kay and her sister. The sunlight poured in through the stained glass windows. As Miss Shelby said during children's chat, the Lord was here at that very moment. During that hour, and his love is endless. Coach Carl had a great message and only needed a smartphone to read a verse of scripture because he didn't want to misquote the words of the Lord. He certainly didn't need a light to shine on his notes because he spoke from the heart and his love for the Lord and being a servant. Inspiration and words flowed from him. Coach had a question that stayed with me this entire week. For me, each day at random times, his question kept popping into my thoughts. The question he asked was in this way and with this with this emphasis, who are you? So who are you? Are you a farmer? Maybe you're a school teacher. A son? A mother? Or are you something bigger? Something greater than these? If you can answer that question, it changes your frame of reference on how you look at things and focus of life itself. And as Coach said, everything in life becomes easier. Please rise. And prepare our hearts for worship as we go through Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? 
the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, and who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessings from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek His face toward Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Now let us sing, Come, Behold the Wondrous Mystery.
Did you hear that? Yeah. What did that sound like? A bicycle or a drum. Oh, you're hitting that. Yeah, what, is, what am I doing? You're knocking. I'm knocking. Who knocks at your door? Who knocks at your door? Grandma and Grandpa knock at your door? Jesus. We'll get there in a minute. Does the mailman ever knock at your door? No. Yeah, sometimes she toots her horn. Yep. The mailman might knock at your door? Um, let's see. What about your cousins when they come over? Do they ever knock at your door? Yeah? They just come in? Well, sometimes cousins have that privilege. They just come in. What about your neighbors? Do they ever knock at your door? No? No? Got it. All right. So, do you know in Matthew chapter 7, it tells us that Jesus knocks. Let's listen. In chapter 7, verse 7, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Where do you think you might knock at that Jesus is going to open up a door? Heaven. Maybe heaven? What do you think? You think if you knocked on the door of heaven, who would be there to greet you? Jesus. Some people say it's St. Peter. I know. I'm trying to guard it. Okay. So. Knock, knock. Knock, knock. Yeah. So when, when God knocks on the door of your heart, do you let him in? Or do you say, nope, the door is closed? Evan, do you let Jesus in your heart? When Jesus knocks, do you let him in? Yep. Yeah, we do, don't we, girls? We do. Yep. Are you going to knock? Yep. Is, is Jesus coming in your heart? Is he opening up the door to come in your heart? Okay. It says... Or you can just go like a bed. Yep. It says, for everyone who asks receives. He who, he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. So if we knock on Jesus' door, he's going to let us in. He's going to say, come on in. Come into my house. Come be a part of my family. Okay? And we need to remember that. All we need to do is just ask Jesus to come be a part of us. And he's ready to come in. Okay? And so we need, when Jesus knocks, we need to open our doors to Jesus. And so I have these little things that you guys can color, and then you can hang them on the doorknob to your bedroom. It says, open your door to Jesus. Okay? So let's say a quick prayer, and then I'll get you guys some of these, okay? Okay. Fold your hands. Dear Jesus, we hear you knocking, and we are welcoming you into our hearts. We love that you love us, and we want to be like you. Please be with us this week. As we go off to school, maybe for the first time or the third time, it doesn't matter. Help us to remember to show Jesus' love everywhere we go. And that when he knocks, our door is always open. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I have some door hangers for you guys. All right. Everybody take one. Evan, you can take one for your brother. In Iraq in the last week, we lost Sergeant Roshain Juvence Brooks, 30, from Brooklyn, New York, 
Specialist Alan Levy Stegler, Jr., 22, from Arlington, Texas. We've lost five soldiers in a helicopter crash off the coast of Hawaii. And in Afghanistan, Staff Sergeant Aaron R. Butler, 27, was killed in Nangarhar Province. He was from Monticello, Utah. Also, in Charlottesville, Virginia, last week, or a week ago yesterday, actually, in a domestic terrorist attack, Heather Heyer, 32, from Charlottesville, Virginia, was killed. Two Virginia State Police died in a helicopter crash. Lieutenant H.J. Cullen, 48, from Midlothian, Virginia. Trooper Berkey M.M. Bates, 40, from Quinton, Virginia. This attack was the result directly of the expressed hatred exhibited by the Unite the Right rally composed of American Nazis or neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klan members and followers, white supremacists, and other alt-right groups who the night before had begun with the torchlight parade, reminiscent of lynchings that had occurred in our country in the past, shouting, among other things, quote, Jews will not replace us, and, quote, blood and soil, or, as we would understand it, Blut und Boden, which was taken directly from Nazi rallies in Germany in the 1930s. These misguided ideas of ethnic superiority are not only in opposition to America's professed ideals, but contrary to Christ's teachings. These ideas and the groups that espouse them must be opposed whenever they appear, because silence and equivocation imply consent. We need to keep in mind the words of President Lincoln in his second inaugural address in March of 1865 as he sought to bind up the wounds of the Civil War. Keep in mind, with malice toward none and charity for all, we are called to bind up the wounds that divide us in these times, that we would have to deal with these issues in 2017 honestly almost escapes me. Pray that we can come together and eliminate this terrorism in our midst. Thank you, Jay, for sharing that. As we go to the Lord in prayer, let's pray for uh, unity as a country, as Christians. Let's pray for healing for those involved, as well as healing for our country. And pray that as Christians, we can be an example of Christ's love and his peace and his comfort uh, in our world today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you are God. Um, Lord, that even in the midst of, of, of what happened in Charlottesville last week and what's happened around the world in the time since then, Lord, you are still God. Um, and we take comfort and, and hope in that. Uh, Lord, help us as Christians, as Christ followers, to set an example of your love for this world to see. Help us to be a light in the darkness. Help us to... Uh, Lord, set an example for others to follow that point people towards you. Lord, remind us 
of the love that you had for us. And let that be the motivation. Let it be that love that overflows in us to other people. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a nation to heal, to come together, and to move past these ideas that's, that divide us so much. Help us to, to see that not only as, as Christians and as Americans, but, but as people, Lord, we are, we are valuable in your sight. All people are. And help us to, to set that example for others to see. Lord, we know there's, there's many other concerns as well in our hearts and our minds, and, and we, many of us carry burdens into the room here today. And those listening on the radio have, have, may have, have concerns as well. We pray and, and lift them all up and, and give them all to you, Lord. We pray that your will would be done, that your peace would reign, and that you would bring healing and restoration and reconciliation where it's needed, Lord. Because, Lord, we know as much as our human efforts can do, Lord, um, we know that all things are possible through Christ and through the love and, and mercy and grace that you pour out to us through your Son. So we lift these up and, and pray, Lord, in and, and Jesus' name, that these would be done and that your will would be done in each of these situations. We pray this all in the name of Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I invite those who are helping with the offering to come forward at this time. Our offering this morning goes to support Serve International. And as you can see, we have the Hirschfeld family up here to bless us with special music during this time. Thank you. 
Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and the moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. The word of the Lord. Let's stand and sing together. Well, continue standing and sing together number 185, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. seated. 
Father, thank you again for this day to come and to worship you, uh, to hear your word and to, to lift up our prayers to you. I pray that that as we focus on your word now and the message that you have for us this morning, I pray you to open up all of our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us and give me words to speak uh, that I may proclaim your truth. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So two weeks ago, the last time I had a, I was with you, um, which I heard I had a, it was an interesting week for me not to be here from all reports of how the service went last week. Uh, but two weeks ago when I was with you, uh, I, I preached on the end of chapter four in the book of James, which is a warning um, to people within the Christian community about, uh, about not boasting about tomorrow, not making plans and not going about their lives as if God was not in the picture. Right, and the, the concern there about that. As chapter 5 opens, it's a very similar issue that James is addressing here. But the interesting thing is that he's not addressing Christians specifically. The rich people, the wicked people that he's addressing in this passage are most likely not members of the Christian community, but members of the community at large. Which is interesting because as we read the Bible, typically we think of the Bible being addressed to Christians, right? We think of the Bible uh, in the letters, especially of the New Testament, written to the early church as, as being addressed with, with Christians as the primary audience. And that is mostly the case. But what we see here in James is, is James begins to address these, these rich oppressors, these people that were outside of the Christian community but had a very strong impact and strong influence on the community as well. If you think about it, it's very similar to the way that prophets in the Old Testament addressed uh, the nations as a whole, these wicked nations that surrounded God's people. You can open up any one of those uh, prophets in the Old Testament and see these warnings and see these, these prophecies against these nations. And even James uses some of the similar language here. He says, he tells these people in verse 1 of chapter 5 to weep and to wail. It's a phrase that often occurs in the prophets to, to describe the reaction of the wicked on the day of the Lord, on the day when God would come and to bring justice and to set all of the wrong things in the world right. Uh, the, the, the reaction of the wicked on that day is often described in terms of weeping and wailing. And so James is bringing up that imagery here as well. And James, in doing so, he's pointing to the, the condemnation and the punishment that God will execute on the day of judgment to, towards those wicked and the unrepentant. So the question is, why would James include a warning like this in his letter? Why would he address non-Christians in a letter written to a church? Well, obviously, I think maybe the word will get out, of course. As James addresses this issue, I think there's, to an extent, hoping that the people will hear this warning and change their ways but I think there's a purpose for James writing to the Christian community as well. And it's the same purpose, I think, that we have reading the passage in our day. And there's two sides to it. First is a warning. Uh, what James is talking about here, the, the issue that James is addressing is the, the allure of wealth and power and the negative effect that that can have on someone's life. Now, James is not warning directly against possessing wealth or having money. Right? The issue isn't, isn't just simply possessing things, but it's the misuse of it. It's the abuse of power. It's the abuse of wealth at the expense of God and at the expense of others. And so I think James is writing this warning to the Christian community and to us today to warn us about that. That with wealth comes power. 
and that Christians who have been blessed with wealth and other material possessions, you know, we should heed James' warning and not use them for our own selfish purposes. Just as these people have done that have, that have lived self-indulgent lives and have abused those under their authority, it's a warning for us not to fall into that same trap. I think that's especially true for us as Christians in today's world, right? I mentioned a couple weeks ago that American Christians are the richest, you know, well, Americans in general are the richest people that have ever lived on this earth. We have wealth and, and resources and material possessions beyond what any, any community or any country in the history of this world have ever experienced. And so as Christians, what do we do with that? You know, how do we handle it? Are we going to allow ourselves to fall into this temptation of, of, of self-indulgent lifestyle? Are we going to abuse the authority and the power that, that wealth and privilege often bring? Or will we use it for God's glory and use it according to his will? So, so there's a warning built in here, I believe. But there's also a message of comfort. Because as James warns these, these oppressors and warns these, the wicked rich that he's referring to here, it brings a sense of comfort to those who have been victims of that oppression. Does that make sense? It's the same function that a lot of the, the Old Testament prophets had, right? As, as Israel read the, these, these warnings against the surrounding nations that had rejected God and had oppressed their people, there was a sense of comfort there because the ending message was always that God would make things right in the end. That God is just, God is holy, God is powerful, and that one day... Maybe not in this lifetime, but one day God will set all of those wrongs right. God will come and judge the world according to his law and his will. And those who have not lived up to that, those who have taken advantage of that and abused that, will have to face judgment one day. And so there's a word of comfort there as well to the people who have been affected by this. And, and most likely the, a, a good majority of the church that James is writing to, and a good majority of the, the early church as a whole were poor people who were being oppressed by wealthy landowners. They were the lower part of society. And so, so hearing this warning would have been a sense of comfort and hope and peace to them as well. Does that make sense? So it's a warning not to fall into the same trap, but it's also a sense of comfort for those who have been, who have been victim of it. And so what James here is he's doing is he's condemning a pursuit of wealth that has no regard for God or his will for us. And that's the key there. He's not condemning being rich itself. Right? Having a savings account is not wrong. Planning for retirement is not wrong. Having a job where you earn money is not wrong. What's wrong is, is taking advantage of that and using it for our own selfish purposes, using it for our own comfort and our own pleasure, instead of using it to honor God and do His will. Does that make sense? And so the condemnation is based on their abuse of the power and the sinful misuse of wealth. And so a question for us to consider, a question for modern readers who are looking back on this situation. You know, we may not be able to relate to it exactly. The, the economy, the culture of that day was that there were a lot of wealthy landowners, Right? that controlled most of the property. This is an agricultural society. The vast majority of people in the society then had to work for these wealthy landowners. They didn't have property themselves. They didn't have land that they could farm on their own, but they could hire themselves out 
to these wealthy landowners. And so there was a, a lot of power and a lot of wealth concentrated in, in the hands of a few. And the vast majority of the population were kind of at the whim and at the disposal of these wealthy landowners. And so while we may not be, you know, hiring ourselves out as day laborers personally, I think there's a, there's a, there's still a parallel that we can draw here. There's other forms of power that we have that we can easily take advantage of if we're not careful. We have relationships such as family dynamics. We have friends. We have the church here itself where we, there's, there's power dynamics and relationships at play where, where some people may have, have power and authority over other people. And so if you're one of those people, are you using it well? Are you using it to glorify God and to, to, to help others? To love Him and love others as we're called to do? Or are you using it for your own gain? In your own purposes, in your own authority. See how this makes a connection to our daily lives now? Maybe you have a job. Maybe you are, you are a leader in the community, officially or unofficially. Right? Are you using that position or using that authority, that influence that you have to honor God or for your own purposes? But it does apply to our own financial situation as well, right? We have, um, you know, we have money, we have resources, and are we using it? To honor God. I'm not saying, you know, quit your job and give away everything you have. No, I'm saying with what you do have, are you using it to honor Him? I think we have many areas of influence in our lives, and if we really took a moment to think about it, we'd realize just how much influence we have without even realizing it. Remember, during my time as a youth pastor, I always told those high schoolers, listen, you may not realize it, but you have a whole group of junior hires that are looking up to you. You have a whole group of younger kids that, that idolize you, good or bad, right? So you need to, you need to conduct yourself in a way that, that, that honors that, that points them to Jesus and helps them to, to live into their faith and not do something to discourage them. Does that make sense? I think we have that same dynamic in our own lives. Well past high school, we still have relationships and people that look up to us, whether we realize it or not. And we need to, to do something with that, to point them to God and not just abuse that authority. The question is, will we use our power, our influence, our, our wealth for our own selfish purposes, neglecting God and our neighbor, or will we use them for our own good? And as I was preparing this message this week, I couldn't help but realize how timely I think this message is uh, for our, our culture today and, and where we're at as a nation. I'm thankful and, and grateful that Jay shared his thoughts on what happened in Charlottesville last week. And I just want to take a moment and just echo that. You know, how do we respond to that situation as Christians? How do we respond to, to that public display of, of, of hate and, and racism and bigotry uh, that was on display last week? And, and you know, I'm not saying that that was a new phenomenon, I, you know, stuff like that has happened for a long time, but the, the cultural moment that we're in has just brought it to light, you know, and made it more obvious, and it was all over national headlines, and you couldn't help but realize what was going on. And I think as Christians, it's important for us to, to stand up and to, to denounce those things, that discrimination and racism and bigotry and hate and whatever form it may take are incompatible with our faith in Christ. So whether we're talking about you know, white supremacist rallies or anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or xenophobia, whatever form that takes, we need to say that that is incompatible with our faith in Christ. 
that through him, sorry, I have a note on my phone that I was going to reference, that through him, all people have value and are worthy of dignity and respect. All people, no matter their creed, their nationality, their skin color, are made in the image of God. And so therefore are, are worthy of our respect and love. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In John 13.35, Jesus tells his disciples, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so our job as Christians is to, to demonstrate God's love to other people in word and in deed. And it, as, as, to echo what Jay said, it seems strange to have to stand up here in 2017 and make that comment, right? But here we are. So I'm going to make that comment. We need to show love and respect and dignity to all people, no matter who they are or where they're from or where they were born, what economic class they're a part of. And as Christians, we can, we have that ability, you know, and, and the reason this ties in is because James here is talking about the, the influence and authority and power that people have and the misuse of that. As Christians, believe it or not, we have influence in our society. We should have influence. And so as Christians, it's our job to stand up and say, that's not us, <laughs> right? And to show love and to show respect to people no matter where they're from. And to pray for them. Pray that that their hearts would be softened towards Christ. Pray that our country would be united and not divided. And pray that, that we, in whatever way we can, here in New Knoxville, Ohio, can make a difference for the good. Does that make sense? Just a few weeks ago, I, James, um, the passage we were on in James talked about not showing favoritism. And I didn't realize how timely of a message that was going to be. And so I feel like as we talk about what it means to not abuse authority and abuse power, it's important for us to remember that we can have an impact as well. As Christ followers, we must speak out against such discrimination and show people God's love, not just through our words, but through our actions as well. So let's, as we, as we look at God's word together, let's, let's be especially conscious of that application too. So James here, uh, I think there's two warnings that James is is giving these people, and I want to highlight them for you. There's there's actually four things he says, but I think they fall into two categories, and that's to do with the, the the natural temptation that we have to abuse wealth and power, as I've already mentioned. And that the first temptation is to ignore God and to simply pursue our self indulgent lifestyle. So this kind of goes along with where we where we talked a couple weeks ago. That we just go about our life as if God is not even in the picture, right? God's not even there. He's, we just do what we want, when we want, how we want to do it, right? And, and so James here is condemning that sort of lifestyle as well. In verses 2 through 3, he talks about the moths that destroy, the corruption that takes over our wealth. And they indicate that no matter how hard we try, right, we can't hold on to our wealth forever. That, that, our material possessions, our wealth, our money, our bank accounts are all temporary by nature. Similar to Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 6, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy but, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy 
and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These people that James is writing about have accumulated so much. The fact that they have accumulated so much reveals that they have put their trust in these earthly treasures and not in their heavenly treasure. It's developing, you know, as Jesus said, it, it indicates where their heart truly lies. They're developing false priorities, right? They're trusting their money rather than God. And it's especially foolish in light of the fact that they can't take their wealth with them, right? We can't take our stuff with us when we go. I had another funeral I did here yesterday, and I, somebody asked me, how many funerals has this been for you now? And I, if I, in, my math, in my head, I just tried to add it up real quick, and I think it was number 16 that I've had since coming here to, to, to First Church. And not one of them had a, her, had a hearse with a U-Haul attached to the back of it. Right? It seems obvious, but, but right, we can't take our stuff with us. We can't, we're not going to bury our, our, our treasure with us. I mean, some people can try, but it's not going to do them any good. Right? Even as much as we can possess in this life is not going to follow us into the next. And so by, by the very standards of eternity, right, those things are temporary. And yet we put so much emphasis, we put so much, um, we strive to have so much stuff because we think it's going to bring us meaning and satisfaction. But in the end, it's going to do us no good. And so how they use their wealth then will condemn them before God. It says that, James here says, that the corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. I think our checkbooks, and if we want to throw in our calendars too, they're both theological documents. In other words, they indicate where our heart really lies. How we spend our money and how we spend our time goes to show what we really care about. And so if we're just hoarding up wealth for ourselves, if we're only spending money on ourselves, if we're only using it for our own self-indulgent purposes, what we're saying is that we are the center of our universe. That all we really care about is us. And there's no room for God in that picture. So I encourage you, take some time this week and look how you spend your money and your time while you're at it. Take a look at your checkbook and your calendar. How are you spending those precious few dollars, those precious few moments? And what do they say about what you really care about? Are you just using them for your own pleasure? Or are you using it to make an impact for God and for others? And in verse 5, it's, uh, James again reminds the people, these people have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. There's a biblical concept that runs throughout the Old and New Testaments about the idea of, of roles being reversed. All right, the first will be last. The last will be first. The rich in this life will suffer in the next. The poor in this life will be rewarded and comforted in the next. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that just because you, like I said before, just because you own wealth, just because you have possessions, doesn't mean you're evil and, and subject to to judgment. It's the misuse. Often, throughout the New Testament. When people, the rich does not simply mean those with wealth, but those who misuse it. 
And I love that James refers here to the day of slaughter. Which, which I think James is referring to like the day of judgment, the day the Lord comes to set things right. But, but those of you in, in farming industry, right, know that, that, you know, you fatten up the calves for slaughter, right? You fatten them up and um, just the misuse, like they're hoarding it all for themselves to their own benefit. And all they're doing is they're, they're prepping themselves for that judgment. I don't know if you have, are familiar with the Hunger Games, the movies or the books. Of course, the books are always better. But in the, in the series, there's this, it's this dystopian future where the country's been divided in these different districts. And, and District 1 is the capital, and they hoard all the wealth. People are living in the lap of luxury while all the other districts are suffering and have to engage in this yearly um, gladiatorial <laughs> fight in order to, to provide for their nation. And, and the main characters are selected to participate. And so part of their preparation is they go to the capital. And these are people that have been starving, literally, having to scrape together food for their families and resources for their families. And they go to this capital and attend this celebration where people are eating so much that they take something to vomit the food out in order to just eat more. And it's this, this contrast of the wealth and their hoarding and the abuse while at the expense of everyone else. I thought that the, the movie doesn't really do that scene justice, but in the books it's very obvious, the contrast that is there. And that's the image I get that James is talking about here. They're fatting themselves for the day of slaughter. They're hoarding judgment upon themselves just like the people in that movie and in that book. So the first temptation of, of wealth and power is to ignore God and to live a self-indulgent lifestyle. The second temptation that James warns against here is to ignore others or even abuse others for personal gain. He says here that these people have cheated workers out of their pay. The Old Testament has a lot to say about taking care of, of laborers and the poor of the society. You can look at passages like Leviticus 19.13 or Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, verses 14 and 15. But I think Malachi 3.5, which is one of the prophets, is especially poignant. The Lord is speaking through Malachi, and he says, So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers. Right? They all, those are the bad guys of the, of the Old Testament prophecies, right? Those are the ones that are always listed as, as receiving judgment from the Lord. But that's not all he lists here. The very next item in the list is against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I think it's interesting that, you know, the, the typical bad guys of the Bible are listed right there along people who, who abuse their authority and their power and their wealth. They go hand in hand. See, day laborers were paid at the end of each day. You know, think of Jesus' parable of the laborers in Matthew 20, where they hire out these servants to work for the day, and then they get paid at the end of the day. That's typically how the economy worked back then. And why that's important is because the people needed money to provide for their family. They needed to take what they earned that day home with them to buy food to provide their family. And so to go and to work all day to, 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 to sell yourself into this servitude and then not get paid at the end was, was almost like a death sentence for that family. To deprive them of their daily wages was to deprive them of the food and the shelter and the basic resources 
that they needed. Think of a family who's living paycheck to paycheck. I'm sure there's many people here that can relate to that. Think of what it means to, to put in that work, to put in that effort, and then your, your, your employer says, sorry, we're just not going to pay you this week. What would that do to your family, right? Think, put yourselves in that situation. That's what James is talking about here. But he reminds them that God hears the cries of the oppressed. Just as Abel's blood cried out from the ground in Genesis 4 after his brother murdered him, God hears the cries of these people being oppressed. And that's a theme we see throughout the Bible, right? God heard the cries of the Israelites in Egypt as they were in slavery, and he responded to it. And so the word of comfort here is that God will hear their, their cry and act on their behalf to bring justice and righteousness. It may not be in this life, but it may be in the one to come. It will be, I should say, in the one to come. Martin Luther King Jr. said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Which means that we may not experience that now. There's people in this world that may be under oppression and be victimized, but, and they will not see in this lifetime justice being done. But God has made the promise that he will return and he will right all of the wrongs in our world. God is holy, powerful, and just, and he will have the final say. And these people oppress the righteous. The recipients of the letter were, like I said before, were most likely the ones who were suffering at the hands of the rich. They had done nothing necessarily wrong, but were falling victim to these people. And so these are words of comfort to them to stand strong in the midst of trial. And so, a couple questions for you to just hammer this point home. Do you feel like you've been taken advantage of? Are you someone that relates to these victims? May not be day laborers being deprived of their wages, but maybe you've been in a situation where you have been done unjustly. Right? You've been a victim of oppression in some way or shape or form. Someone has taken advantage of you. Reach out to those around you. Seek the help you need and take comfort that from these words while it may seem that the wicked prosper, their time is short and they will not win in the end. God has not forgotten them or you and he will make things right. But there's the other side of the coin too. How have you in one way or another taken advantage of others? What can you do to rectify that situation? Do something this week to make it right, to move in that direction of reconciliation and justice. And in closing, I just want to remind you that there is hope for the hopeless. This seems like a pretty, pretty strict, pretty harsh condemnation of the rich, right? Those who abuse their wealth and their authority. And Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 18 that it's very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. But while it may be impossible for man, all things are possible with God. He can soften the hardest of hearts. He can break the grip that materialism and wealth and power has on us. And he can transform us so that we can learn to love God and neighbors and our neighbor instead of ourselves alone. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard that asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said to him, We have left all we had. To follow you. I pray for you today that you would be able to say that, that, that those who 
who are feeling convicted by this passage would be able to say, look, we've left all we've had to follow you. Help us, Lord, to, to turn away from that, the grip that that has on us and surrender to you. Help us to, instead of rejecting you and rejecting your will for our lives, submit to you. And help fill us with your love so that we can love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are both a God of justice and a God of mercy and grace. Lord, that you care for those who have been victimized, that you care for those who have been subject to unfair circumstances, and that you have a special heart and concern for those people, but you are also a God of grace and mercy, that if those who have, who have been in power and have abused their wealth and abused their authority would just turn to you and submit to you, Lord, you will transform and soften their hearts and help them to learn to love God and neighbor, Lord. Help us all to do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In closing, let's stand and sing number two, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen. Go in peace.